in Masontown, Pennsylvania, and Dunbar. And we want to encourage them. Uh, we want to say, okay, go for it. Uh, these are the areas that they're from. And so these two young kids said, listen, I feel called to be a pastor. I'm going to go back to my hometown, and I'm going to set up a shop, and I'm going to tell people about Christ. And so we want to root them on and help them. You notice on the back of our courier, this is how we're going to do it. Number one, we're going to pray. Uh, number two, we're going to prioritize. Number three, we're going to give by faith. And then be thankful that we can uh, give for the glory of the Lord. So this is, this is our goal. So take that home, post it in conspicuous places. And we're going to begin our journey. The beginning of the offering will take place the second Sunday of November. And then it'll go all the way through the end of uh, January. So this will be something that uh, you can be a part of this year. If you've never been a part of it before, I think you'll enjoy the blessing of it all. Let's stand together this morning as our ushers come forward and we'll receive our morning offering together at this time. Thank you so much for your faithfulness in giving each week. We appreciate it tremendously. And uh, that's what helps us to keep everything moving in a proper manner right up here on the hill. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the privilege of coming together to give for your name today. We thank you that you've first of all given these gifts to us. Uh, you've given us the strength to go to work, to make a living, to provide an income. And now, Lord, we've come back as a church to provide an income for your work. We pray now that you will bless each gift and each giver. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
answers cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me Let's open our Bibles today, please, to the book of Matthew. Matthew, chapter 16. And if you didn't bring your Bible, maybe there's one near you, under the seat somewhere in front of you. There's some scattered across the congregation. There are some red Bibles. I think it's page 661. Two weeks ago, I talked to you about the church. Simply, that was the title, the church. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the church again, but I'm going to use a different title, and we're going to call it the body of Christ. Because in the New Testament, it goes by both of those terms, the church, the body of Christ. Jesus is uh, ministering uh, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. If you go in the back of your Bible and you look at the maps, you'll find that there are two Caesareas in Israel. One is uh, on the Mediterranean, Caesarea by the Sea, it's called. This was in, in the north, uh, right up by Mount Hermon, by Lebanon, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus was ministering, most of his ministry was around the Sea of Galilee. But he told his disciples that they had to go for this announcement, the announcement of the church, to Caesarea Philippi. And so they made this long 14-hour journey to this town that was not only named Caesarea Philippi, but it was named the Gates of Hades. Jesus wanted to make this announcement right up in the face, I think you could say, in the face of the devil. And so, um, verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What are people saying about me? These are the responses. Some people think you're Elijah raised from the dead. Others think uh, you're John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he asked the crucial question that, that every one of us has to answer in life. Uh, who, do, who do you say that Christ is? And who do I say that Christ is? Who do you say I am, he says. Simon Peter stepped up, and we're not surprised, because every time it was an opportunity to speak, he, he wanted to do it. He wanted to be the spokesman. Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, this is a wonderful revelation, as Jesus mentioned in the next verse. 
And it didn't come to him from himself, but it came from the Father. And what, what Peter is saying here is this, is that you are the Messiah, the person who fulfilled all Old Testament, fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies. Uh, and then you're the son of the living God, and that means that you are divine. You have the nature of God. Look in verse 18. But I say to you that you are Peter, and on, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You know, whenever we think about the church being the body of Christ, yeah, there's lots of scriptures in the New Testament that attest to this. The church is called one body in Christ in Romans 12:5, one body in 1 Corinthians 10:17, the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12:27 and Ephesians 4:12. The scriptures take the body which you and I are well familiar with and uses its functions and features to illustrate how the church is supposed to be working in the world. Uh, whenever Jesus was ministering with his disciples, remember he gave them this promise. In John 16, 7, he said this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And so you can imagine how that went over with his disciples. Remember, they were, they were walking with the Lord for about three years, and uh, I don't, that had to be really exciting, don't you think? Getting up in the, in the morning and saying, okay, here we go with Jesus again. Uh, we're going to see him heal. We're going to see him do all sorts of miracles, forgive people of their sins, uh, and uh, how exciting that would be. And then Jesus said, listen, this is going to come to an end. What a shock that would be. But he said actually this, it's to your advantage that it comes to an end like this. I think that was a hard sell for Jesus to, to pull off with his disciples. And he gives them the reason. He said, listen, if I don't go away from you, the comforter is not going to come to you the Holy Spirit. And the reasoning behind this, this uh, statement is, is Jesus could, was only at one spot at one time and, and sometimes his disciples were around him and other times his disciples were not around him. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is going to be better for you because I'll be with you always then. I'll be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. When you wake up in the morning, I will be with you. When you go to bed at night, I will be with you. When you walk through the day, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That, in that sense, it's going to be better for you. You know, when Jesus entered into this world, he took upon himself a physical body. And uh, he demonstrated the love of God clearly, tangibly, and bodily. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you see me, you see the Father. And so when he ascended into heaven, he instituted what you and I are enjoying today called a church. And the church is supposed to do the exact same thing that Jesus did while he was here on earth. It's supposed to display and to demonstrate in the world in a tangible, bodily, clear way 
what God is all about. We call this the body of Christ. How many people here know what the meaning of the word gleaning is? Gleaning, G-L-E-A-N-I-N-G. Raise your hand, gleaning. Quite a few, okay? Uh, that's We're going to do a little bit of that today. Gleaning is picking up the pieces. You know, when you go into the scriptures, there's always something more. Have you found that out? There's always something more. You look at it on the surface and you say, okay, I got that. And then you go back and you read again and you, and you know what you say? Oh, my, I didn't see that. There's something more. We're going to do a little bit of that today. Uh, first of all, I want to talk to you about the founding of the church, the body of Christ. In verse number 18, this is the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. Ecclesia, it means to call out, a called out group of people assembled together. Almost exclusively in the New Testament, it's translated church. Sometimes it's translated assembly, groups of people that are together. Somebody has defined the church as a group of baptized believers under the discipline of the word of God. We come together. We make our commitment to Christ. We publicly proclaim that commitment by baptism. And then we submit ourselves to the word of God. We get under the word of God and we say, okay, best I can, I'm going to try to live by this. Uh, the church is founded by Christ. He said, I will build my church. He's the originator. He's the owner. You know, there's plenty of common denominators in churches that are Bible-preaching churches. You know that you can go to many Bible-preaching churches today, and that's a good thing. I don't think we can have enough of them, these kind of churches. Uh, and, and in one sense, they all have the same DNA. They believe in what we call the cardinal doctrines of the faith. But in another sense, they all have a different DNA, too. They have two DNAs. Uh, they have a doctrinal uh, DNA, and then they have a, uh, a personality DNA. All churches are a little bit different. Every now and then we'll have somebody move away from our church and they'll say, Pastor, could you recommend a church over in such and such a place? I just had somebody mention that. And, uh, and most of the time, I don't have a recommendation. I'll just say, you just go around and check them out yourself. And then when you think you found one, call me and I'll go deeper into it and I'll check it out. Uh, in a deeper way for you. Uh, this church, uh, churches are different. Uh, we believe, as I mentioned two weeks ago, that the church was founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to just go back to that just a minute this morning, okay? Look at verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter. The Greek word there is petros, which means a small stone. Peter, you are a small stone. And on this rock, the word there is Petra, a large foundation stone, Petra. And we believe that Jesus here is making what we call a play on words. Peter, you're a small stone, but on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Years ago, Joanne and I used to travel across the ocean quite a bit, and uh, we visited uh, Jordan. That's the accompanying country right next to Israel. And in Jordan, uh, they have this city called Petra. You can look it up on the internet when you get home. Not now. Some of you have yours there right now. When you get home, you can look it up on the internet. Petra. It's the, the red rose city of Petra. It's, all, it's made out of rock. Petra. It's a large stone. 
And so we believe uh, pretty strongly that Jesus would build something this important, the body of Christ, on a good solid stone, on himself. And we use for one of our key verses for that, 1 Corinthians 3.11, let's read this together. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, he's the only foundation, isn't he? But, you know, here's where we're going to glean. Now, you ready to pick up another piece? I didn't mention this to you two weeks ago. Uh, there is a, a parallel teaching that says that the confession of the disciples is the foundation of the church. You can find this in good commentary, sometimes good, uh, good um, Bibles with the commentaries on them. Uh, the confession of the disciples is the foundation of the church. And what is the confession of the disciples? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so that's a very substantial view right there also. But then there's another thing I want to throw out for you this morning. Another time you read in the New Testament about a foundation is found in Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. And it goes like this. Maybe you've run into it lately. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now here's another reference to a foundation of the church. Originally, the church, when it was founded, uh, had the first layer of the believers, the apostles and the prophets. And the church was built, humanly speaking, on them. Uh, we would call that today the pillars of the church. In every church, there are pillars, right? That there were here in the beginning. We only have a few pillars left in our church that was here way back in the beginning. Several of them were here this morning in the first service. Teddy Wilderman was here. Uh, Betty Stitch was here. They're pillars in the church. A few weeks ago, we just lost one of our great pillars of the church, Matt Pettigrew. Uh, these are people that were here in the beginning almost, and uh, we have relied upon them. We have, uh, when everything else was going on, they were standing strong. They were the pillars of the church. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about the prophets and the, and the apostles being the foundation also. Now, churches come and go, but Jesus said the church is here to stay. And he says more than that, and that leads us to the second point. That leads us to the future of the church, okay? Let's look at that in verse 18. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let me put this in common every, everyday language. What he's saying here is the church that I, I found, now follow me please, will be successful. The church that I originate and the church that I found will be successful. Now what does that mean? Because the world has all sorts of definitions of what success are. But you know, they're so foreign to what God's idea of success is. Because God's idea of success is something spiritual, very seldom tangible. Uh, I believe this. For a church to be successful, it needs to answer the question well, does it carry out God's plan for its ministry? 
the little church in Masontown, Pennsylvania. You know, if you drive through Masontown, you blink, you missed it. If you go through Dunbar, you blink, you missed it. Does that church, those little churches there in those small places, can they be considered successful? Of course. Do, do they carry out God's plan? So he gets right up in the face of the devil here in Caesarea Philippi, and he makes this pronouncement, the gates of hell cannot stop the church. Now, I get kind of excited about this. Every time I think about it, it's, it's challenging to me. You know, the church is not a building, it's not a steeple, it's the Holy Spirit at work in the believers in the group. And this passage is talking about the church on the offensive rather than the defensive. Because I know that so many Christians have this idea that, you know, the church is getting pummeled, beat up. And so what we need to do is run away and hide and uh, get in some sort of a fortification so we can't get beat up any longer. That is not the imagery that Jesus is talking about right here. He's talking about Satan being in his fortification and the church on the move and the church coming up against the fortification of the devil and breaking down the doors of the devil's strongholds. Satan is backing up in this passage of scripture because of the aggression of the church. Now it's nice to see the devil back up, amen? It's nice to see that. And you know that's happening all around the world? The Philippines. One pastor told me a couple years ago that he loved to go to the Philippines because it was like America 50 years ago. The Philippines today are sending missionaries to America. Korea is sending missionaries to America. And people are being saved in those countries by the untold millions. The church is on the move in those areas. Jesus said this, the church will be successful. Satan will back up. Read everything you can by Amy Carmichael. She was the Irish missionary to India. She called the, the march of the church glorious, raid, glorious raids into the kingdom of darkness. That's what the church is all about. The church is meeting together, strategizing, praying together, and then going out and confronting the devil on his turf where he lives. That's the ministry of the church. What does that mean? That means saving the lost from the penalty of sin. You know, the world is under a death sentence today. It really is. And here's the reason why. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That means that everybody has to pay one day. Payday's coming. Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. The whole world is under a death sentence. And the only way for them to have their, the penalty of that sentence removed is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the church is, that's what the church does. The church is t telling people today that they can be delivered from every stronghold that binds them. Every problem, every addiction, every compulsion that's not right 
Anything that's evil, God has the power to break that bondage in a person's life. Jeremiah 32, 17, Jeremiah is praying to the Lord and he's saying, Oh, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. Jeremiah says, God, you made it all. You can, you can fix everything. The church in our world today is building godly families in the middle of a world that tries to redefine the family and to destroy the family. Uh, families are being reunited. Families are coming together, putting Jesus first in their life. The church is encouraging people to raise children like Daniel who say in their teenage years that I will purpose in my heart not to defile myself with any portion of the king's delicacies. You know, the world has a whole lot to offer, but nothing as good as what Christ has to offer. The church is removing the terror of impending death for those who are looking straight at death in the eye and could die at any moment. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because it's about the resurrection and it's one of the chapters that we use at funeral services and, and one of the verses in that chapter goes like this. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? And, and it's uh, the Apostle Paul and he's standing back and he's doing this. Now, this is so interesting. He is mocking death, mocking it, because Jesus has taken the stinger out of death. The, the sting of death is sin, and Christ has dealt with the sin question. And so, therefore, a person doesn't have to pay for their sin when they are forgiven by Christ. Christ took the, sinner, the stinger out of death, sin, and, and Paul stands, stands back and says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a pretty good message, the church. You know that? We really do. We have the message that the world needs. And as you know, they're looking in the wrong place for the answers to life. Now, if we want to use some biblical terms today to describe the process of this victory of which I speak this morning, let's just pull a few old terms out of the Bible, okay? The first one is justification. Justification. Some of you are taking your notes there. That's a good thing. Uh, and it is defined as being declared righteous. When I was a little kid going to church, I remember the old preacher was preaching like I am today. And uh, he was talking about justification, and he said to the church, the way to remember the definition of justification is just as though we had never sinned. Let's say that together. Just as though we have never sinned. One more time. Just as though we had never sinned. That's justification. When we are saved, when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and washes away our sins, God looks at us and declares us righteous, right with him, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He declares us righteous. We go home and we know that in our head and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, who, me? That's me? We believe it because the Bible says it. That's why we believe it. That is our position in Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous. 
And we lean on Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's another term, justification. The second term is sanctification. Uh, what is that? Uh, well, that's the process that we are in, the process of spiritual growth. Uh, it increases our love for God and increases our love for others. And I think this is a good barometer for us. As we walk along the Christian journey, do we love God more and do we love other people more? Can we allow other people to come into our life? Can we actually love the unlovable? And as we grow in that, that's sanctification. It's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Let's look at these verses and uh, let's read them together, okay? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify it, there's that word, and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Now there's the word sanctification, okay? There we go. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Boy, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. First of all, sanctification begins inside of you. And sanctification means this, to be set apart for a special purpose. God calls us out of the world. He puts us in the church. And he says, listen, I have a special purpose for you now in your life. Your purpose is just not now to go to work and earn a living for your family, although we have to do that, of course. But you have a higher calling in life. I've given to you the keys of the kingdom of God. Here they are. Go use them. I have a higher calling. Sanctification is to be set apart for a special purpose. And so it begins in us, and then it goes to our home. Look at it. Husbands, love your wives at home, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. It uh, carries over into the home, and then it carries over into the church. Well, in New Testament times, the word love, there was a number of words for love. The first one was eros, E-R-O-S. We get the English word erotic from that. It refers to love driven by desire. Another word that they used back in that time was the word storge. Uh, that's a family kind of love. You know, family, family love is pretty strong. It's real strong, in fact. That's a good thing. And then there was another word that they used. It's called philia. And that's friendship love. Some of you in this auditorium today, you have some real good friends. You know, they may live in Colorado or they may live in North Carolina. Or they may live somewhere else. But I'll tell you what, they're friends for life. You talk to them often on the phone. You go places with them when you can. Uh, you, if you have a problem, you call them. You talk. That's a friend. Philia. But this word is a different word. Husbands, agape. Love your wives. That's a higher kind of love. Because most of those, those previous words I just gave you are dependent upon our feelings. They're dependent upon the circumstances. Agape is not. 
It's a higher kind of love. It describes a different love, a love more of decision than spontaneous heart desire. It's a, a love, it's a self-sacrificing love. It has to do with the mind. It's a, a love that reaches out and does the right thing when we don't want to do it, simply because it's right to do. Now, the only way that we can have this kind of love, of course, is to be saved. Because this is God's love in us. This is the fruit of the Spirit, remember. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, agape. And so the only way that we can exhibit God's love like this is to have God's love in the first place. And so this sanctifying process will enable us to obey our Lord's commands. And uh, let's go further into the verse, okay? That he might sanctify it separate the church for a particular purpose and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Now that's really important, the word. There are basically two original words for the word word. One is logos, which you've heard before. That's Jesus and that's the words of scripture. The other is rhema and that's the spoken word. And I think the I think the what he's talking about right here is back when they came together in these churches, you know, they couldn't sit in church like we do today and open your Bible to the chapter and verse. There were no chapters and verses and there were no Bibles. And so they would have a speaker get up and he would have the word of God, whether it's from the Old Testament or, or otherwise. And he would open the word of God and he would speak the word of God. And look what the result, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water. As the, as the speaker would give the word of God, it was like a cleansing to the people. The people would come together and, and he would speak the word of God and they would be cleansed. Uh, and they would be helped by the speaking of the word of God. Uh, I think that the word of God needs to be the book of the church, of course, in every Sunday school class, in every meeting that we have, we open the word of God and we speak. And it's a cleansing. It cleanses people. And I think what I'm saying today is there's some things that you can get in, only get in church that you can't get somewhere else. Now, I push big, and you know this, for you to get into the word of God at home, and I think that's most important. But I, do never want, I never want to depreciate the idea of coming to church because God always has something in church if it's constructed in the right manner that will help us and draw us closer to him. Jesus said in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. There's that word. Jesus used the word sanctify. Sanctification. Sanctification through the word. Well, uh, the next word is this. We've done justification. We've done sanctification. Now glorification. And that's the time that you and I shed this old frame, which is getting more creaky every day. Creaky. Uh, we shed this old frame and we enjoy heaven. Glorification. Uh, the next, let's go back to that last, the last verse there. Uh, thank you. No, 
Ephesians, the last verse in Ephesians. Oh, well. Glorification. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea, for I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus is, there we go. And he might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church. Now, there's the word glorification right there, a glorious church. We look at the church today and we say, oh, man, I wish the church could be better in this area. And I wish the church could get fixed in this area and we can never get this fixed. And uh, one of these days it's going to be fixed. He's going to present him to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. One of these days the Lord is going to present uh, to himself the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Uh, and uh, his bride is going to make herself ready, and we're stepping into glorification. Okay, that's the founding of the church uh, and the, the future of the church. And now let's just take a couple minutes and look at the filling of the church. And turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 is being, is, uh, Luke is telling the story. And Jesus is out preaching for 40 days after he is, his resurrection, before his ascension. And uh, this is what he tells his disciples in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, in your, in your Bible there, write the word pray. He commanded them to pray for the promise of the Father. He said, you, ha you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, they do exactly what Jesus said. They called a prayer meeting. And in verse 13, they went up into an upper room and verse 14 says, they all continued with one accord in prayer. This, by the way, was a 10-day prayer meeting. I guess they were coming and going during that time. But for the most part, it was a 10-day prayer meeting. Do you think you could handle that? And what were they praying for? They all continued with one accord in. Between in and prayer, put the. The. The refers back to verse 4. They were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. For 10 days. They prayed together. That was the promise of the Father. Now, Jesus referred to this in Luke eleven thirteen, For you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Wow. Give the Holy Spirit. To those who ask him. They were in this prayer, 120 of them were in the upper room and they were praying, send us the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. Send us the Holy Spirit. Now that's a prayer that we don't have to pray today. That was for them, not us. Whenever we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, automatically, spontaneously, instantaneously, we receive the Holy Spirit. The moment we're saved. 
Romans 8 and 9 says, He who has not the Spirit is none of his. The Holy Spirit is imparted to each person. Uh, the Holy Spirit is our comforter and our convictor. You know, in life we need a lot of comfort, don't we? I'll tell you what, the world is a tough world out there, isn't it? And the Holy Spirit has to come and put his arm around us and say, listen, come on. Let me encourage you. Come on. And that feels good, doesn't it? He's the comforter. But he's also the convictor. Every now and then he has to, like, push us back into the corner and get in our face and put his finger under our nose and say, listen, you better straighten out. You better get things going in the right direction. He's our comforter, and that's all good. We need both of those things. And so the church was filled with prayer. And then in Acts chapter 2, the, the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down on the church. And, and what that essentially meant is the, Holy, the church was filled with power. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so here are these fearful disciples, and they're praying for 10 days, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes down, fills them with power. And they go out, and they begin to do what Jesus said would happen to the church. Satan would back up. In the face of the oncoming church. And that's the story of the book of Acts. The last thing is the church was filled with ministry. These people had power and they worked together to make the church successful. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is a wonderful verse. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. Whenever a person is saved and comes into the church, the Lord gives them abilities that nobody else has in the church. You're unique. And he says, listen, you give your ability to the church. You make it work better. Don't withhold my gift to you from the church. Give it freely. Give your ability so that it can help each other. And when you do your thing and I do my thing, the church works better. That's as simple as it gets. God has set the members, each one of them in the body as it pleased him. That's the ministry. Uh, the founding, the church is founded on Christ. The church will be successful, he says. The church is filled with prayer, and the church is filled with power, and the church is filled with ministry. And so the finality of it all is this. Let's offer what God has given to us back to the church. Don't hold back. Say, listen, I know that I can do for this for the church, but I'm holding on to it. My life's just, it's just not working out right now. Well, let's just make it work out right now, okay? Let's overcome these obstacles. Let's make the church run smoother. Let's make it run stronger by each and every one of us giving back to the church what the Lord has already given to us, our hands, there's so many things that we can do in the church. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and eyes closed in prayer today, I'd like to ask you to look into your heart. Uh, if you are saved, you have been declared righteous by God. You are forgiven. He looks at you with a new light. 
and you're on your journey of sanctification, you're growing, you're struggling, but you're growing, you're going forward. And uh, I want you to take the next step, okay? Whatever the next step God is speaking to you about, I want you to say, yes, by his will, I'll do that. I'll step out on faith. And then surrender what God has already given to you to the church. Give your hands. Give your heart. Uh, give your love and your commitment to the church. And uh, I'll tell you, that is God's plan for all of our life. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we could have together in your word. I pray that you'll just take these things and uh, use them in our life for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, please, as we sing our invitation song. And as we sing the song, just feel free to come and pray. This is Gene Sigmund. Upon thy profession of faith and in obedience to the Lord's command, I do now baptize thee, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of Christ's death. Raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Vicky, Vicky Sigmund. Upon your profession of faith and in obedience to the Lord's command, I do now baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of Christ's death.
raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And the Lord's people said, Amen. Jimmy, you have a, an announcement. All right. I'll keep this brief. Um, I have a ministry opportunity for you all. Uh, if you look inside your courier, you'll see a trunk or treat uh, paper. I ask you to do two things uh, for me. Um, take this with you. Pass it to your friends and family and neighbors, even to the bus stops, and get the word out. Uh, this is on Wednesday, October 30th. Uh, we're going to have a trunk or treat right here. Trunk or treat is nationwide, and what we do is we uh, encourage people to um, decorate their trunks and pass out candy. And uh, it's a real ministry opportunity. It's an outreach for our community. And um, we're in need of like 30 vehicles to, to really do this right. And uh, We've got several signed up in the back, but as of this, before this morning, we had like five vehicles. So we really need your help. Please prayerfully consider uh, signing up in the very back here and registering your vehicle to pass out candy. I really appreciate it. But again, passes out information. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you, Jim. This is a great event that we have for our community. About 300 kids, I think, come up, and they're all over this place, and we're giving them gospel tracts, and we're... They finally see where the church is up on the hill. So let's all get behind what Jim's trying to do, okay? Let's stand together, please, to be dismissed. Shake hands with a number of people around you. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great day.